Welcome to On the Side with Jackie London, a BS-free podcast where we're talking all things food, nutrition, and wellness to help you build healthier habits that stick. As a registered dietitian, author, journalist, and former clinician turned content creator, I've heard and seen it all. Join me each week as I debunk diet myths, explore the latest wellness trends, and answer all of your pressing listener questions. Plus, we'll hear from a guest who will kick off each interview weekly with a soup to nuts rundown and, okay, sometimes analysis of what they're eating, cooking, ordering in, or where they're dining out with tons of delicious ideas, lots of laughs, and plenty of pro tips in between. The one thing I can actually guarantee, I'll serve up tangible, actionable strategies to help you apply the science behind what works to what works best for you. Welcome to the On The Side podcast with yours truly, Jackie London. I am so happy to be with you guys today because what a day it is. This is the official one-year anniversary of the On The Side podcast. I have been doing this podcast now for one official calendar year, and I have only you to thank for being here and for being a part of this community. I cannot tell you guys, when I first started this, I felt like, is anyone going to hear this? And I still ask myself (laughs) that question regularly. But for those of you who are listening and who have been with me from the beginning, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you. In a world where organic growth and, and spreading the word about anything new, particularly in a really saturated content space, is like getting ever like that much more challenging and difficult to actually do. Having people like you listening to this podcast, staying engaged, sending me questions, sending me texts about something that you heard on the podcast that you've taken with you and used. I cannot tell you how much that means to me, really. And I don't get the opportunity to say that like directly in your AirPods to you right now. I don't get the opportunity to say that all the time. So I just want to say, seriously, thank you, listeners and listeners who are former guests or future guests of the podcast. I've had so much fun doing this. This really is a format that speaks to me. Long-form journalism is where it's at as far as I'm concerned, and especially in an audio medium where I can just sit with my cute little headset and speak to you in a microphone. Thank you so much for being a part of this with me and for any and all of your contributions that you've made from whether it's asking questions on Instagram, leaving a review or a rating in Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or on Stitcher, on Amazon, all of that is so meaningful to me. So thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Today, I want to take this time to answer three questions that are related to the topic of hormone imbalance, quote unquote, hormone balancing, hormones, hormones as a nutrition related topic. I've gotten tons of questions on this. So I picked three that I thought would be the most important and critical to to really dedicate an entire episode to. And I know that this is a really pressing question and it's a really pressing topic just because I feel like it's popping up on all forms of social media platforms everywhere. I see this on TikTok. Literally, it's on my For You page every second of the day. So I thought I would kind of blow this out because I did get a message and I want to shout her out, although I will not share her name, but a a woman who reached out on Instagram who 
is grieving the loss of her dad. I just wanted to give her a shout out. Thank you for sharing your hormone question. I'm sorry I'm so late to this party in answering it for you, but I've been thinking about you and I have been meaning to get to get to, you know, have the time and space to really give this some real meaningful thought. So all of these questions, I've really put some time and effort into and did some, some background research as well so that I could come prepared and actually answer this in a meaningful way. And of course, I do that whenever I'm looking to answer a question for you guys. But because this woman reached out and I relate to to grieving the loss of your dad. I mean, I lost my dad in 2018 and in the fall, and it always feels like a little bit harder this time of year and a little bit more challenging to go about everyday life when it feels like this massive hole is missing. (laughs) And this person that you love so much, that love doesn't go anywhere. And that grief gets more manageable, but it doesn't ever really go away. So I'm thinking about you and sending you so much love and support. And I hope that this episode gives you a little bit of joy, a little bit of a reprieve to actually think about something else, like something so fun and flip, like hormone health. (laughs) Who wouldn't want to talk about hormones? All right. Well, anyway, listeners, I have given you this pitch. I've taken this time to introduce the episode. I want to get to it, but first, a couple housekeeping notes. Let me just say again that Dressing on the Side and Other Diet Myths Debunked, 11 Science-Based Ways to Eat More, Stress Less, and Feel Great About Your Body is available for purchase on Spotify. That's important because I've heard that there's some struggles with getting it from the publisher. So I'm going to dig into that this week, but in the meantime, definitely check it out on Spotify. And I would also say, of course, you know, we're on Audible, wherever you listen, but it's newly on Spotify, which I announced in my episode last week. So if you have not yet listened to the Willow Jarosh episode, definitely check that out as well. Second thing, any questions, any of your pressing nutrition health questions, DM me at Jacqueline London RD on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. I'm also at Jacqueline London on TikTok. You can find me there. And as always, please feel free to rate the podcast five stars and leave a review. I would so appreciate that. And without any more chatter from yours truly, let's go. Let's talk about hormones. Do you have any specific foods that you warn women not to consume because they're linked to hormonal health issues? Ooh, in a word, (laughs) no. So as a dietitian, there would really have to be a direct causal link between a specific food or nutrient and a direct health outcome for me to really recommend avoidance of any type. And since research to date, really has yet to show a cause and effect relationship between any one specific food or nutrient and long-term risk of chronic disease or even short-term disease risks for women's health, right? Like the hormones that, that you're referring to here. And that's ranging from gynecologic diseases and breast cancer to heart disease, diabetes, and endocrine cancers. I would encourage women to focus on what they personally enjoy eating and instead of what they should be avoiding to consider what they can include more of. Veggies and fruit, 100% whole grains, pulses like lentils, chickpeas, beans, peas, low-fat, unsweetened dairy products, seafood, and plant-derived oils that provide mostly unsaturated fats. So basically everything except for coconut oil. And hydrating from unsweetened beverage sources, water, sparkling water, coffee, tea, all of that. I think this strategy really works twofold because first it helps women to start shifting 
their mindset, and, and I include myself in this, right, to start including more of the nutritious foods that fuel your body's overall immune function and day-to-day energy levels, while also contributing to reducing your risk of chronic disease without any sense of fear or deprivation or restriction. And as a secondary outcome of this shift, we naturally start to cut back on foods that are higher in added sugars, saturated fat, and sodium, nutrients that have been linked to increased risk of chronic disease across the board, and are often found in abundance in highly processed packaged foods, right? So while I'd never recommend complete abstention from anything, and cutting back is a phrase that I just think is like a trigger for so many women at this point, and it often really just backfires also, I think that shift in mindset to including more real whole foods more often is our best bet for increasing the intake of the specific compounds, those nutrients that are important to us, like fiber, antioxidants, unsaturated fat, key minerals that are linked to improved health outcomes overall. So that's really a longer sort of more involved way of saying no. There are no specific foods that I would ever tell women not to consume because they're linked to hormonal health issues or problems or imbalance, which is such a hot word right now, right? Like I feel like all over social media, you're seeing people talk about hormone balancing. But the most important thing for overall balance in biological terms and in life is really getting closer to homeostasis, right? To getting closer to everything sort of working in harmony in a way that's right for you. And where I see this coming up in a ton of different questions and lots of different stuff online about like cortisol levels and spiking insulin, how cortisol impacts insulin levels. And, you know, insulin is having high insulin levels is so such a bad thing. Listen, we are all going through shifts over the course of the day. Your insulin levels will be higher after you eat versus before you eat, where your glucagon levels will be higher. The idea of things going up and down to some extent is part of balance. It's part of homeostasis. It's part of what we're all striving for or looking to have more of. It's linked to reducing risk of chronic disease, and it's also linked to reducing risk of any women-specific hormonal health issues, right? But I mean, this is true for men also, but I, I know I understand this question from the gynecological health as well as um, reducing risk of breast cancer standpoint too. So I just want to be clear that I am I am thinking about this from the lens of what specific women need. I think we get caught up a lot in focusing on numbers and metrics and fear mongering around that. And I know I talked to you guys a little bit about this personal experience I had recently a couple of weeks ago on our, our last solo episode, which was about getting involved a little bit with a, a product that I wound up feeling like the actual user experience of this product was a little bit too focused on numbers and outcomes in a way that was actually just very unhelpful. We do need data. We do need to know what's going on with ourselves, with our bodies. We need to be able to sink our teeth into hard facts, right? But sometimes those facts are not very useful. Your insulin levels are meant to go up after eating. That's just a fact. Also, also that's just a fact, right? And the same is true for when you're hungry, you're going to have higher glucagon and that's a fact 
also. And those things, making sure that we're striving for a greater level of balance within our everyday lifestyles, within our lives that that we want to make longer and more enriching, I, I would say on the whole, I don't think that anyone's not in favor of that. We What we're really talking about by way of getting there is consistency. So to whatever extent we can practice consistently eating meals and snacks that nourish us. I don't mean every second. I don't mean every hour of the day. I mean, consistently using information that we have and what's available to us to fuel what we want to do in our lives, to fuel the other things that we enjoy doing besides eating, and also taking a moment to actually enjoy food. That's what real balance really looks like to me. That's what homeostasis, I think, is is sort of like the perfect description as it relates to anything nutrition-related. So absolutely not. There are no specific foods that women should not consume. I know that the American Cancer Society... I was looking at this the other day because I answered this question on TikTok about specifically about alcohol, which is it does drinking alcohol increase your risk of cancer. And the American Cancer Society has this really kind of well well articulated statement on their website about how it's not necessarily about the other beneficial properties that are in something like wine, like you'll hear about antioxidants in wine. They're really focusing on the impact of ethanol and whether or not ethanol is increasing risk of cancer, of certain lifestyle-related cancers. And these are cancers that you would be at a higher risk for based on genetics, right? So yeah, I mean, I get where they're coming from on that, but I don't think it's particularly helpful because they call out ethanol. They are making the statement about alcohol from the American Cancer Society. Honestly, it's a good statement for them, (laughs) for, for one organization to make who has a stake in one specific lifestyle related disease. I understand the research that they're using and where they're coming to that conclusion. Basically, their conclusion is don't drink because it can increase your risk of lifestyle related cancers. But they are careful to also mention that if you are going to drink, <laughs> that doing so in quote unquote moderation, which is a topic we've talked about a lot on this podcast, that if you are going to drink and you're going to do so in moderation, that one to two drinks a day, one for women, two for men is probably what is considered moderate across the board. And that while they're not going to recommend you start drinking, they would promote the spirit of moderation over, you know, binge drinking, drinking all day, every day, right? I mean, I think I think that's the perfect sort of way of, of looking at so many of these recommendations that are out there as well, particularly when they're linked to disease states or to increasing risk of chronic disease. When I talk about making alcohol a part of an overall health-promoting pattern of eating, I am really looking at that from the standpoint of what are you doing? What is the occasion where you are consuming certain foods. And I talked a lot about this in Dressing on the Side. I talked a lot about it on this podcast. I feel like the occasion trumps all in a lot of ways. And I say that because I've I've used this, this analogy many times, which is the idea of like people feeling like they have to cut something out or limit something, which brings us back to our original question about hormone health, right? Like feeling like you have to limit something or cut it out entirely versus actually thinking about where you are when you most enjoy that thing. So I love candy, 
personally, when I go, I love candy every day. <laughs> I love candy in all kinds of settings, but I love candy at the movies, right? Have you guys ever been to a movie without candy? It's honestly just not as fun. In my opinion, <laughs> it's just not as fun, right? Like it's great to go to the movies and have candy. Now, if I felt like having candy around me in my home was a problem, I don't feel like that, by the way. So I just want to just want to be clear. Like I'm making up some fifty percent of this statement is made up. But okay, let's say I felt like candy having candy at home was difficult for me to feel like I could really stay on track with my overall health promoting pattern of eating. Right? Like if I felt like it was really disruptive to my meal choices, then I would say I am not restricting candy. I am taking it away from this setting. I'm going to enjoy it where I enjoy it the most which is the movies, right? And I think alcohol is the exact same way. And I know I've sort of answered now two questions in one question, but I, I think that it, it brings us always back to the same place, which is that when we hear discussions about hormone health and hormone health issues, and the American Cancer Society has a statement like cancer risk and increasing risk of cancer risk through a dietary choice, I think we would do ourselves all a a favor by considering who is making these recommendations, where is that information coming from, and where is an organization, if it's an organization, coming from from the standpoint of making this statement for their specific demographic. So in both cases, consistency and setting time and place are really key to actually using that information in a more empowering way rather than feeling like it's scary. Because I do think that sometimes these things come off as a little bit scary. And I think that just given my own TikTok for you page, which is like filled with people who are telling you how to balance hormones and they have no credentials or expertise and are not certainly not looking at real human research in order to make these statements, consistency and getting to what feels like more of a place of balance for you, of having certain things in your life as a part of your life and in the settings that are meaningful to you, that's where I would want to advocate most of us could could seek to find more balance from doing this more often. What feels like balance? What feels special? What feels like the right occasion for you? All right, our next question. We know that refined flour can cause hormone imbalance in women. Oh God. Already. Oh God. We know that refined flour can cause hormone imbalance in women. Sure we do. Is there a safe amount of this flour women can consume? All right. Let me try to get this snark out of my voice. So the primary concern when looking at blood sugar response to food is seeing spikes versus dips, right? So making sure that your blood sugar is staying level as possible throughout the day for people with relatively normal, what we would call normal blood sugar, right? So these are the spikes and dips within normal limits. The things that we would expect to see if you were hooked up to a continuous glucose monitor all day, every day, right? But making sure that it's staying more level, right? Like that's possible by choosing real wholesome foods, right? With flours made from 100% whole grains or legumes and eating those foods with a source of protein to help maintain more stable release and subsequent rise in blood sugar. And also to help keep you feeling more 
satisfied longer, right? Women with impaired glucose metabolism like PCOS, type 1 or type 2 diabetes, or gestational diabetes can absolutely benefit from including more 100% whole grains and cutting back on the sneaky sources of added sugar. And I'm, I'm using the words cutting back on because I think it's a relevant term in the context of a sentence that also says sneaky sources, right? As in, you're making the conscious choice about where you want to actually eat your dessert versus letting sneaky sugar just come in and out of your day like it has its own agenda. You know what I mean? It's like a boundary bully like that. <laughs> so cutting back on those sneaky sources of added sugar and refined carbs in the form of sugar-sweetened beverages, this one you know, sort of like the hill I personally will die on, ice cream, baked goods, pastries, breaded and deep-fried meals or takeout meals. But all of that being said, you know, in practice, I'm so often, and you all, my favorite people, my listeners know this by now, that I'm so often working to debunk this myth that any single food in isolation of everything else you're doing can make or break your health, especially since, in my experience, it's much more likely that women are consuming foods with added sugar, those refined sugars, right, without knowing it. That's where I get stuck, you know, because this is where a lot of the discussions that we've had on the show for the past year and in hearing from different people with different perspectives on food, nutrition, health, preventative health overall, this is where I agree with so much of what many of our experts who have come on from with an intuitive eating background, this is just where I slightly diverge, which is that I do see the impact of how diet culture can influence us into believing that all types of restriction or in any way that dieting has kind of like that the choosing certain foods for different reasons has come up within our culture and within our our everyday vernacular and within our own inner monologues like this is where i diverge ever so slightly because i actually think that so many of us are simply uninformed i just think that maybe it's not that you wanted to lose weight it may have been that you made a specific choice because it seemed like a more nourishing, more energizing option. And then you realized, actually, that's the that Courtney Kardashian green juice from Erwan in Los Angeles is just bullshit. <laughs> Right? I, I think a lot more of us, especially in a world where media and content of all types is, is king, I think that tricks us. And I personally, and I say that from absolute pure personal experience, I, I want to just share this little story as a divergence here because I think it's relevant to the point that I'm trying to make, which is that yes, diet culture is real. Restriction and restrictive tendencies and where those things come from, that is a very real thing. I'm not dismissing that by any means, but I am merely saying that there is also something else that is huge and much bigger. And this is something I have direct experience with. So when I started at Good Housekeeping in 2014, I had just come from a clinical setting where I was looking at research all the time. I was also seeing patients all the time and making calculated clinical decisions with an interdisciplinary team 
my primary focus was in traumatic brain injury and stroke rehab. So often I was cycling patients off of tube feeds or putting people onto tube feeds. I was also talking to families nonstop. I was also working with modified consistency diets. So people who need like a thickening agent or were graduating to different levels with working closely with like a speech language pathologist. There are so many different nuances to that work. And therefore the knowledge base that I developed in my time in the clinical setting was invaluable to me. And something about the imposter syndrome of coming to work at this media company at at Hearst Magazines where I felt like I didn't belong a little bit, right? Like I felt like, oh my God, like here I am, this like little clinical nugget. What do I know about media, right? I, when I first arrived, the first two weeks that I was there, maybe probably more like first two months that I was there. Let me just be honest with you guys. Um, The first two months that I was there, I felt like I was getting pitches all day, every day. I mean, nonstop. I mean, I could still, I have the the server of my former emails from my time in, in working in a magazine because I simply could not get through that many emails, but I didn't want to lose certain contacts. And I knew that if like an idea came into my head, I could go back to that sort of like email database of like the products that were pitched to me. The biggest thing at the time in 2014 was like turmeric, coconut oil, chia seeds. Like these are things that are very much a part of like the sort of like wellness culture that's out there now today. And I found myself, oh, and my God, oh, this is such a good example that just came back to me right now. Charcoal. This is also like the start of like when charcoal became a trendy thing. And I remember going back and I remember even emailing one of my old coworkers at the hospital asking for the full study on the topic of charcoal because for whatever reason I was blocked from getting this specific study. And I knew she could pull it for me (laughs) really quickly because we had access to that kind of to the PubMed database. So I looked through this study on charcoal and this is after so many people and so many, both people inside of of the magazine, like my colleagues and, and publicists and people working for companies that represented or like the marketing people at whatever company were telling me that these things were so beneficial and have this detoxification property. And I was like, let me just make sure that I know what I'm talking about. And this is like the truest experience of imposter syndrome and, and shows you why sometimes the effective frequency or the simple influx of information that's out there about food and nutrition and the marketing claims that people find within themselves to make <laughs> about certain products and certain things. Uh, here I was with quite a bit of clinical experience, a, a real research background, and I still doubted that I knew what I was saying when I said, no, that's not true. Or I don't need to answer that email because that's bullshit, right? I still doubted myself. If I can doubt my own level of nutrition knowledge and understanding as someone who works in nutrition science and had been hired to do this, something that at the time felt like a huge step up for me, it felt like a really like big shoes to fill. You guys heard from Samantha Cassidy was in the early days. She was my predecessor. I I mean, I felt like this is such a tremendous responsibility. What if I'm getting it wrong? So I would spend hours going back through research that I already knew where we were going to land on this, right? I'd spend hours going back through research to to really like make sure that I had all of those, had the understanding of what those claims were and how to kind of combat them, how to myth bust them in a meticulous, like tedious way that honestly turned out to be relatively unnecessary. (laughs) 
because I did actually already know that. However, the exercise itself, I think I got a lot out of it. If I were to go back and do it again, I'd probably still do it that way because again, I got so much out of that experience and I really know my stuff on all of these like trendy topics now that I feel pretty solid in, in saying that absolutely not. There's no there there. But I think that we're not looking at the power of marketing messages on ourselves on and on one another enough. I think we're quick to say that it's because of disordered eating patterns rather than saying we sometimes buy into things because we've seen them everywhere. How can it not be true? Now, I think actually, as I'm saying this, I think that this hopefully and, and most likely is probably different for Gen Z. I, I think if you're listening to this now and you are a Gen Zer, please call me, text me, DM me on Instagram at Jacqueline London RD. <laughs> you probably don't use a phone for calling, but I, I think that maybe there's some some distinction there because I I did not grow up necessarily like tied to a computer, or tied to a phone, tied to like a mobile device or social media. So I that I came to that later, and I think maybe this is definitely true of Gen Xers and and boomers who also feel like, you know, our access to information has changed. So maybe there is part of Gen Z that feels less susceptible to that effective frequency. But I certainly was, especially as someone who felt like, you know, the weight of nutrition science was sort of like on my shoulders for this magazine that was meant for consumers, right? So I didn't want to get it wrong. And I felt like the stakes were high. And so it it caused me to go through this exercise of painstakingly fact-checking myself nonstop. And ultimately where I landed is that I had all of this information already. It was so affirming. It was reassuring. It still doesn't necessarily always change your your feelings of imposter syndrome overnight. But I think we're missing the mark if we say that everything is diet culture versus saying, actually, sometimes the nutrition science is really important here because we have real science to combat some of the narratives that are fed to us by the wellness industry at large. So I just wanted to diverge to share that story with you. I think it's an important one for all of us to think a little bit more about. Now, let's go back to sugar for a second. So is there a safe amount of flour to consume? Yes, of course. Eat the flour. It's totally fine. Some of the top culprits that come up from the sneaky source of added sugar, especially when working with clients in practice, juices like ones made with added sugar, including honey, coconut sugar, agave, maple syrup, 100% cold-pressed juice, which is, you know, listen... That is not a source of added sugar. I'm gonna just going to clarify that. I did once receive a cease and desist from the National Juice Association or something like that just because this is sort of like my own personal hill to die on as well. <laughs> it's juice. Just because I feel like, can we just have a fucking orange and move on with our lives? But okay, you've heard that from me before. But juice, of course, is a concentrated source of naturally occurring sugar. It can yield a similar not necessarily 100% the same, but it's a very similar impact on blood sugar, particularly over time, it will be the same, right? Breakfast, snack, protein bars can be sneaky sources of added sugar, cereals, sauces, dips, marinades, alcohol mixers, sports drinks, sweetened coffee and tea beverages and refined flour in the form of extra breading, like dumplings, like crispy protein-based dishes on a menu or battered and deep fried veggie sides. These are stealthier sources that can add up throughout the day. So it's true that when we consume excess refined flour and added sugar, as in in excess of what we personally need over time, 
The pancreas will secrete the hormone insulin more consistently, which can result in a cluster of symptoms that manifest in impaired glucose metabolism. But again, I say that over time. So making shifts in our everyday meal and snack patterns to include more of the fiber-filled 100% whole grains, veggies, fruit, legumes, that provides us with a more steady, slower release of sugar into our bloodstream to give us a more stable and consistent release of energy and therefore a steadier blood sugar level on the whole, one that is not always going up and down because of specific food triggers. And when I say that, I mean, again, within what is expected to be normal, but where I'm zooming out here is to say for the sake of long-term flexibility of blood sugar control, right? So the bottom line on all of that is practicing a more inclusive eating pattern that's focused on including more real whole foods can and absolutely should allow for the occasional treat in the form of your favorite baked good or ice cream or candy bar or frozen margarita or whatever you love, right? But doing these things more often, practicing greater awareness about where there might be stealthier sources of added sugar adding up throughout your daily meal and snack choices and beverage choices can help you stay informed about yourself, right? Like that feeds the information machine that you need about you so that you can actually feel empowered to make the choice to eat dessert and not feel like, oh fuck, I just ate a brownie tin and I didn't mean to. You know what I'm saying? All right. I think that that covers that. All right. Next we have high fructose corn syrup has been demonized for years, but there recently are some camps that say it's not so bad to consume. What say you, especially concerning women's health and hormone imbalance? Oh yeah, true. This was all just big, one big activist marketing campaign. (laughs) So high fructose corn syrup is similar to any type of sugar. And in that regard, the dose makes the poison. High fructose corn syrup is made from corn, shocker, and sugar is made from sugar cane. Again, shocking. Both are plants. Yes, that's true. But the former has more fructose than glucose and vice versa in the latter. Fructose is metabolized ever so slightly differently from glucose, but the differences in their actual food sources have been completely abused by the information jungle. And that's what I would call really the internet in this case. One-off study findings in the news, marketing campaigns, research that that examines differences in human metabolism of these predominant types of simple sugar in each ingredient, right? So let me just repeat that again so that you get the nuance of what I'm saying there. And forgive me, I didn't mean for that to sound condescending. I hope that didn't sound condescending. I don't think it did, but let me just repeat that. Fructose is metabolized slightly differently from glucose, but because where they're found in foods that humans eat is different, right? That's the part of this, like the, this is where the biochemical process has been divorced from the actual foods that high fructose corn syrup is in, in order to make a case by marketing and media of why it's bad for you, right? In other words, we take a biological process, flush it out and and give it a fancy marketing budget. And yet we're not seeing that the foods that fructose is often in or high fructose corn syrup is often in is... (laughs) is also a part of how we consume things, right? We don't just take fructose straight to the vein. You know, it's we're not shooting up fructose, right? So that's the critical distinction. Consuming high fructose corn syrup 
and glucose syrup and tapioca syrup and organic coconut sugar, date sugar, honey, agave, maple syrup, molasses, or just corn syrup. It doesn't even have to be high fructose. They all have similar metabolic responses when we consume more than what we need over time. All of them, yes, long-term, over time, it's, it's added sugar. But I think high fructose corn syrup has gotten an unfair treatment in the media in no small part because it's almost always one of a few types of added sugars on an ingredient list. So singling it out as a culprit of negative health effects is basically impossible to actually discern and then substantiate with real research. And then also added sugars in beverage form. Now here's really the kicker. Added sugars in beverage form are concerning from a preventative health standpoint because they provide no nutritive benefit. As in, they're not going to help you feel full. They're not going to help you fill up. They're just going to provide calories from added sugar without promoting the feelings of satiety that you would want from eating a meal of the same caloric volume, right? And therefore, they're easy to overconsume. They're easy to make your total intake of added sugar over the course of a day easily overconsumed because you had them in beverage form. That's what makes them the number one source of added sugar in the American diet. And since high fructose corn syrup has most often been used as a sweetener in sugar-sweetened beverages because it's cheaper than other forms of sweeteners, the fear-mongering messaging is a conflation of facts, right? And it's a conflation of all of these things. The problem with much of the data on this topic is that the studies are conducted through providing high doses of glucose or fructose and examining the differences in metabolism, biochemistry, and fat distribution. But... That's only been, first of all, performed in animal studies. B, it's also irrelevant since that is not the way we humans consume food or beverages to begin with, right? We consume them with other things. Now, I I understand the point that's being made by much of the research and much of the marketing around that research, which is that high fructose corn syrup is quote unquote bad because if we're consuming it in cola form or like sugar sweetened beverage form, then I honestly can make that that case. I can make that jump in my head, but then let's call it what it is. It's added sugar in beverage form. It's not just because it's high fructose corn syrup, right? It's not like something that's so unique that you have to be checking every food label for this one ingredient. It makes sense. Yes, it's in colas, but we don't need to get so caught up in the fructose of it all. <laughs> right? We need to get caught up in the soda of it all. Anyway, so yeah, so it's not in in other sources of food. That's not the way that we eat food to begin with. And ultimately too much from any source of sugar can increase risk of metabolic and endocrine dysfunction over time. But how we choose to include it within the context of our everyday meal patterns will help inform how impactful they can be on our overall health over time. So I think that's uh, that's about as fair as I can be to both, yeah, I can acknowledge that in certain situations, like in drinking sugar-sweetened beverages that are made with sugar that comes from high fructose corn syrup, like Coca-Cola, for example, like, yeah, that is a one place where because of the non-nutritive nature of the food, this seems like it would have more of that direct effect that at the same time, we've only seen so far in animal models. That does make sense, but it doesn't necessarily mean that this is one nutrient or ingredient to be completely vilified. There might be slight differences in how they function metabolically speaking, but this does not by any means mean that you have to avoid this type of sugar in any other form other than the form that I would already say you don't need, which is the sugar-sweetened beverages like 
sugary soda. All right. I hope that one is clear. I think it is sugary soda, not for us, but I'm here for the free market of that all. I, it's not like I think that should go anywhere. I just think we need to be conscious about how we're consuming it. And ultimately over time, it's always going to be the dose makes the poison. All right. Trans fat and sugar are directly linked to heart health. Should women cut out foods made with trans fat and sugar or not? Huh? Interesting. A trans fat question. How unique. Okay. So here's the good news. <laughs> trans fat has been out of the food supply since about 2018. So I'm not so concerned that that's really in your present day food choices. Saturated fat and added sugar are most commonly consumed in the form of, of packaged processed meals and snacks, which is why choosing to include more plants, more real wholesome foods, that's our, always going to be our ground zero, our best place to start. But I know that that sounds simpler than it is in real life, right? Because you guys know there's plenty of processed things, things that have gone through a processing of some type that are actually things that I would really recommend and vouch for. So it can be tricky to navigate in real life. And I, I completely get that. So that's why I would say that focusing on swapping saturated fat sources and really anything, any of the processed foods with like the label keto on it, right? For more real wholesome food choices and for, you know, being more inclusive and intentional about the sources of dietary fat that we're eating, right? Like, like eggs and seafood and poultry and beans and legumes, like those are going to be things that have basically no, I mean, they'll have like a little bit of saturated fat, but not, not in a meaningful way that is going to necessarily impact your personal risk of, of heart disease. I think more important would be the overall eating pattern versus the specific foods. But when it comes to processed foods, wherever you can skip those ones that have the made with MCT oil, made with keto, this is keto friendly. Like that's just another way of signaling that we are going to slap a claim on the product marketing and the label of this food product without actually, and like connote healthy signals, healthy quote unquote signals, rather than actually create a food product made from real food. <laughs> so there's that. I'd also caution that there's some pretty solid evidence linking binge restrict tendencies and a history of yo-yo dieting with endocrine and metabolic dysfunction. So if that is of primary concern, then focusing on more balanced, more holistic, more inclusive approaches to better health through those nourishing and consistent meals and snacks and incorporating more movement throughout your day can help reduce chronic disease risk overall. So let me be a little bit more specific about this because I get heart health questions all the time. It's a hot media topic because it, you know, it just is, it affects, it's the number one killer of humans globally. So let me just touch on a couple of other thoughts on this about how we can apply some of the heart health recommendations into real life. Definitely recommend checking menus. Like if you know most of your meals are consumed outside of your home kitchen, right? For keywords, like you you want to scan for keywords and I would I would maybe, if you can audio record on your own, maybe just come back to this podcast. <laughs> maybe you just flag this for yourself, but I'm going to run them down for you right here. Crispy, crunchy, battered, breaded, fritti, tempura, stuffed. All of those can indicate an added layer of refined flour plus oil, like from the deep frying to your meals and snacks. So here would be the, uh, the on the opposite end of that, choosing items that are simply prepared, grilled, steamed, 
poached, roasted, baked, sauteed, or air fried can help guide those dining out decisions as it relates to saturated fat and refined flour that comes in the form of those specific foods that you'll often see on restaurant menus. So I covered added sugar a lot here, but I think it's important to stress that, of course, there's no food that's going to be off the menu entirely. I know I sound like a broken record. I'm honestly annoying myself at this point, but I, I think that a part of a part of including more nutritious foods into meals and snacks and your everyday eating patterns means also creating the flavors that you love using a little bit of a simpler meal prep. So let me give you an example. Like I, when I was in graduate school, I feel like, and I've used this example so much. So forgive me if I've used it on this podcast as well, but I always talked about how we used to go because it was close to NYU for a midday lunch, snack, whatever. Sometimes it was dinner. <laughs> Sometimes it was dinner on the way home. Sometimes it was lunch. It was rarely breakfast though to Chipotle. And so Chipotle became like such a good example for a lot of different things, mostly in a beneficial way. I'm, I'm saying this because I love Chipotle and I think they've got some great stuff. But I, I think that they show us a beautiful example of what it looks like to create flavorful meals using ingredients that are nutritious and satisfying without sacrificing the flavor of the thing we love. What is the thing about a burrito that people love? You love the beans. You love the salsas. You love the, sometimes you love sour cream. Maybe sometimes you don't. Sometimes you love guac. I think sometimes you love extra guac, (laughs) right? But the beauty of a burrito bowl is that you get to mix and match and kind of like add the different amounts of the things that you want to create the flavor of a burrito without committing to the whole damn thing. And I say that not even from a, you know, I'm sure that there are people who would disagree with me here in saying that this makes it a lighter choice overall. Yes, that's true. But where I'm coming from on that is try eating a burrito and then going to class. Because if you haven't had that experience, then you don't know just how exhausting you will feel. You will feel exhausted. (laughs) So sometimes there are reasons to make choices lighter that do not have anything to do with diet culture. And I think that's important to say here. They may have to do with you would like to actually sit through your organic chemistry class that's coming up next, right? But I think a burrito is one of those like like hallmark examples of things that we can use the information that we get from this dish we may love to make a dish that is quite similar, to recreate it in a different way, to go to Chipotle and get the exact same damn thing, and to sometimes say, I want the burrito and I'm going to sleep after because that's an okay choice too. All right. So the other tip that I would give on the heart health front is that when we are considering the simpler prep, I also think it's important to mention nutrient density here and and shifting the preparation methods is one thing but i also think that just having the lens of thinking about how do we make food choices in there as close to intended state as possible so like i i give these examples like but just take these with a grain of salt because I, again some of these are things that i think are foods that are very much villainized unnecessarily but like more often you want to have the potatoes versus the potato chips, right? More often you want to have oranges versus orange juice, whole grains versus the refined white bread, right? All of these foods are a part of a pattern of eating. I'm not trying to, I'm not giving those examples to villainize. I'm giving those examples to clarify that this is what nutrient density may look more like, is more of the intended state, less of the bullshit. 
And then overall, and this is something for heart health and it's for basically any long-term risk of chronic disease is more Mediterranean more often. I think something that we don't talk about enough, but maybe we do on this podcast, but certainly has been my goal over the past year and will keep being my goal moving forward is that the real foundation of my work as a dietitian is to bring the Mediterranean diet that term, but also what that term actually means when lived out loud in real life is to bring more of that Mediterranean inspired cuisine and eating patterns to everyone. And I say that because I I say it with like a lot of caveats and some hesitation, simply because we hear the words Mediterranean diet and we think of like, or at least I think of like the Google search term Mediterranean diet, which like spikes the second it hits January or right after Thanksgiving. And I'm saying that to you because actually there are so many foundational elements to the Mediterranean lifestyle, or at least the way that it's been studied, that I think we can extract and use for our own benefit in myriad ways. Yes, it has a lot to do with the environment, with the climate of Mediterranean countries, as we talked about with Deanna and Serena two couple weeks ago. Yes, it has a lot to do with the climate of certain types of crops that we use to make the food and the beverages that we love. We talked about that with Laura Di Pasquale, I mean, an amazing episode where we talked about the way the wind impacts the grapes in certain parts of Italy. I think that bringing the connection together for you, my amazing listeners who I value and care about so much, like bringing that sense of connection to mealtime is really what my work is all about. That's what I really want for more of us is to use food as a vehicle for a complete experience, a cultural experience. Sometimes it's fuel. Sometimes it's just so that we have energy to get to the next thing. Sometimes it's because we made the choice to say fuck it and just have that fucking burrito or pizza, whatever it is that we personally felt like we didn't mean to have, but we're going to let ourselves feel like, oh, I wish I didn't make that choice today, but I'm practicing self-compassion and I feel okay with it. There's plenty of reasons why we make certain food decisions, but more of this connection that comes from the meal experience, our connection to the food that we eat, learning about one another by the types of foods that we like and dislike, learning about different cultures and climates from around the world and what influences the foods that different people eat and love and enjoy. What is a family, traditional family recipes on that more micro level, right? Like I think food needs an entire rebrand of how we talk about it and how we think about it because the more that we can bring this spirit of, and yes, I will use this word from the Deanna and Serena episode, conviviality, like the more that we can bring that spirit to things, to things that give us real meaning and connection to each other and to the food we eat and to the meals that we have around the table, the better our lives are, the more connected and powerful we feel, the more we feel like we're building a sense of community. I think we're not seeing food that way enough and we need to start talking about it more and start doing things and giving examples of what that might look like. And that's why I I even give those examples about the meal prep process for different foods, right? Is because sometimes this can look different on different menus, but we're getting at the same thing. It's never my goal to take something away from you. It's to rethink things in through the lens of how can this be the best it can possibly be, as in the most delicious, the way that it was supposed to be when it originally came out of the ocean or whatever, right? So I think having some of that 
that understanding and letting that sink in a little bit more about how we can find ways to make meaning and use food as a vehicle for traveling and for experiencing and for understanding one another better, the better off we are. Food should be fun and nourishing and joyful and delicious. And sometimes it can be the thing that we need to power us through the last two miles of a half marathon, whatever it is, there's always going to be different different needs at different times. And all of that is not only okay, but it should be celebrated. So on that note, my favorite people, thank you for being a part of this community of, of this podcast. I don't know where I would be without you. I mean, really, I started this podcast when I was still working at Weight Watchers. I was terrified to launch it. I actually held out on launching it until I was ultimately laid off. <laughs> because I was sort of told to stand down. I mean, that's a story for a different day, but I, I wound up waiting a little bit until after I was already had parted ways with the company and decided that this was something that I really felt passionate about because I like to talk. Let's just be honest. I do. I like to talk. I like to chat with you and sometimes talk to myself into a microphone sitting at my computer. And so I can't tell you how much I appreciate this community and the amazing guests that have been on this podcast and the incredible work that they do. And I would encourage you, if you are listening to this for the first time, to absolutely check out the last 52, 53 maybe episodes that we've had until now because they have all taught me something new about how people view food, about how food connects us, about how food is the through line for all of us, and how many damn questions people have about what's true and what's not true when it comes to nutrition science. So I really hope that you've learned something and had some fun with me listening to this podcast for the last year. I appreciate you so much. If you learn something, if you like this podcast, if you have not yet done so, please feel free to rate us five stars, leave a review, Share what you love about the podcast so that I can see that. I I check these regularly and I want to make sure that I'm delivering the content that you all are seeking and looking for and wanting more of. So please tell me what you love, what's not working, what is working. I would love to hear it from you. People can only find me, find this podcast by way of of your ratings and reviews. So as long as you're rating five stars and leaving a review, that really helps. So even if it's just one word like thumbs up, emoji, that would be super helpful. In the meantime, thanks for spending the last hour or so-ish with me and feel free to email me or to DM me your questions at Jacqueline London RD on Instagram. I'm at Jacqueline London on TikTok. And again, Jacqueline London RD on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter. And I can't wait to catch up with you on our next episode. All right, listeners. Thanks so much for being with me. I love and appreciate all of you. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for tuning in today to this episode of On the Side with Jackie London. If you enjoyed today's episode, please snap a screenshot of your podcast app on your phone, post it to your Instagram stories, and tag me at JacquelineLondonRD to let me know your favorite takeaway from any part of the episode. If you're loving the show, if there's a topic you'd love to hear more about or a guest you'd love to listen to here, I'd absolutely love to hear from you. You can scroll down on your podcast app to where it says ratings and reviews and rate this one five stars, of course, and share your feedback. Your words might just be what the next person needs to tune in and start feeling more empowered and living better one meal or snack at a time. 
Of course, be sure to follow On The Side wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you won't miss out on any episodes. And remember to check us out. Check out the Q&A deep dive on the On The Side YouTube channel. This show is produced and edited by Elizabeth Evans Media Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Keep in mind that any advice provided on this podcast is based off of my clinical judgment and application of research and practice as a registered dietitian, and it should not take the place of medical advice from your own personal physician. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.